1: They are occasionally interesting.
2: If someone is really so into their acting that they become, all right, who they're acting, they actually become, then the emotions that they feel in the situations that they're in are real and they create a vibration that gets carried out into an audience and then that audience reflects that vibration and we just have this magic thing that happens in theater. But if someone is doing it as an act, you don't get... That's the difference between a great actor and an ordinary actor is their ability to be able to be absorbed in the role. Mm If you go to a classical symphony and you listen to it in the symphony hall, you will be more moved by it than the recording of it Hmm. because of that vibrational context. Now, as we learn to pay attention to those, that vibrational context in our lives, it allows us to pick up a whole different magnitude of communication with our world and with the people in our world
1: That reminds me of um, I, I never really understood like a, sort of the new techno EDM music like where it's just it's just noise. <laughs> Um, old man. (laughs) And then, and then, well, then I was watching, I forget, like the old movie, and it was talking about raves in the 90s, and it was about DJs that would play at these raves of the 90s, and what was the DJ's job was to sort of like respond to the frequency of the crowd. So just sort of build up this energy and why and observe the crowd as the energy was building and yeah. then sort of have it sort of so plateau mean because
2: orchestrating you, energy. and sense. yeah,
1: and really it's really about this energy flow yeah. and the good DJs are able yeah. to sort of just make this coalesce. Make this
2: whole thing happen because they're picking up and they're putting the music that is going to be kind of the right, in the, the, that creates a harmony with the crowd that la- allows the crowd to feel. And then as they begin to feel together, you can orchestrate those energies.
1: And it's pretty amazing to watch. I mean, if you go like... There's been a few concerts that I've been to that you could just you can feel the energy flowing. And mm-hmm. it's it's I mean it's it's been amazing to observe.
2: Yeah. My daughter's first spiritual experience that really knocked her, you know, that was the epiphany was a was a concert. Do you know which concert? It was in Vancouver and I forget who one of her um I think Beyonce. Oh
0: wow. That's cool. Was are, are you referring to, a fish? Uh, to fish?
1: It happened to fish. It often happened to pretty lights, um, which again—no fish. will you know,
2: look at that's what the Grateful Dead always was, yeah. right?
0: All
1: about Grateful vibes. Dead
2: was all about. Playing forever <laughs> yeah. and what they did was they worked the crowd into a whole series of things but they did it within the context of a song that happened to last half an hour okay? yeah. <laughs>
1: yes and I had, I had when I had gone to this fish show I had not known much fish so I was kind of going in blind and afterwards I was completely blown away I mean it was it was it was a spiritual experience. Yes. I was like, I, I get it now. <laughs> I, I get fish, totally. I, I'm, I'm I'm with you. 100%. And those
2: experiences begin to open us up a little bit. And how do we begin to create those experiences for each other? And then how do we begin to do that as our work? Um, I am, you know, uh, fortunate that in this work I just happened to be doing it and first with psychology right but then bringing little bits of the spirituality into it and more and more and more until now it's so much more connected with helping them to find the beginning steps of their spiritual journeys. Do you find when you're working with new clients
1: that you have to go through that process or have you just successfully integrated the spirituality into the psychology and just kind of start from there
2: what you do is at least in the way that I'm working with people is to get so absorbed in them that I'm gone which means I'm creating an empathetic connection and in that empathy that allows me to access their intuition with my intuition. If I then don't censor anything because I'm not there to censor, so there's no thinking process going on, I say what they need to hear in words that they can hear because they tell me how to do it.
0: Hmm. Has this process evolved or did you feel a natural ability to do this at the beginning?
2: Um, it's evolved. Yeah, and it is, certainly has been something that is in continuous evolution. I think I'm going through a big metamorphosis in terms of the way I work now. I think do you think any person could
0: the have middle. the ability to do to do that type of? Sure, um, we
2: all we all are you know, intuitive if we can get there and if we can find ways to let go of the thinking mind, can you get absorbed in another person? And When your relationship as is at its best, you're absorbed in each other. You become a we, not an I. That already creates a connection that's bigger than the normal self-consciousness that most of us are stuck in that's inclusive of the we, and the we can be inclusive of children someday, and the we can be inclusive of extended family, and the we can be inclusive of our businesses and our work and our friends, and suddenly we begin to expand into communities and that energy begins to find places where it inspires other energies,
0: uh, so could you for the listeners give, give a summary of what it is that you do professionally <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I mean I remember when we started out and I was I was a psychologist that had a group of business executives it's kind of lonely at the top and we're doing a senior level business group that eventually morphed into another one of those. There were about twenty of these senior corporate executives in Singapore that I was working with as a group within our psychology clinic. The clinic really couldn't afford its overheads it was above it was it was ahead of its time and So I was already then starting to work with many of these different businessmen with the application of that psychological piece into their businesses and being Someone that could give them an alternative point of view and listen to what they were experiencing within the context of their jobs and what they wanted to do and their mission and and their families. That just became kind of a part of what then eventually led to the founding of the Asian Leadership Institute. Now, from the first part of the Asian Leadership Institute um was pretty much a one-man show even though he <laughs> called it an institute <laughs> and there were always ambitions to build an institute. Um But in that starting to build these connections, I remember in the 90s and I was still a suit-and-tie guy going to the corporations and sitting down with people in their offices or in their meeting rooms. And being able to be someone different, right? So I still had the ponytail. And I remember once I cut off the ponytail and everybody wanted it back because (sighs) it just kind of identified you as someone that was a little... Pleasantly controversial (laughs) would be the words that I would use, okay? And it made the J.P. Morgan bankers, or it just made them feel like, oh, this guy. (laughs) There's just a touch of craziness to it that added a dimension. And I remember even back in those times in the 90s that someone came up with, oh, you're an executive coach. And I said, oh, that's probably a good thing to call it. Maybe that's... And then, then kind of that whole thing grew and kind of became more and more. And then somebody says, well, really what you're doing is kind of mindfulness training. And okay, that's all right. And yeah, because the mindfulness then kind of got allowed in because that was a part of a spiritual tradition, moving into a context that was more allowable in business. And so then became kind of mindfulness and wisdom, and it doesn't really make any difference what the words are that you're using. What you're doing is creating a heart connection with business people to create an atmosphere that allows them to become wiser. And out of that, then you begin to transform families and how they are as husbands and wives and parents and, and, um, and then you have a shift in their business and how they're looking at people and how they're doing their practice of their lives with a bit more awareness than they would normally bring to it. After a while, I caught on to the idea because I had left and had gone back to take care of my mother for a while. She needed to go into managed care. I'd taken, I was a single father at that time, and I'd taken my son back along with a maid. And I suddenly realized that, wow, all my clients from Asia would fly me from Harlan, Iowa, a little tiny town in Iowa, and they would fly me all the way to Asia to do work for them. And I thought, well, I don't have to live in a big city anymore where do you want to live and where can we begin to start to because if they'll fly me from the United States they'll easily front fly me from Phuket yeah and so the prototype to this place was in Phuket and then once we were there I'd rented a house on the beach that had kind of three one big house and three kind of small bungalows and then I kind of hit on to the idea of well It'd be a lot more fun to have them come to Phuket than me go to Singapore. (laughs) And so let's create an experience for them that basically is a much, much more intensive interaction that really is much more suited when we are doing transformational processes. So that then I didn't become a behavior coach, I became a transformation coach. And as a beginning of that transformation, what we needed to do, this client and I, was to create a relationship that was genuinely caring and loving so that when, as they did their practice, I called them an asshole, but they knew it was coming from a loving place in my heart. (laughs) And I am provocative, and I do call them assholes. (laughs) Maybe in a nicer way, and some of them may be too offended by that word, and so automatically that word does not arise. Others may need that word, because it's one that kind of, whoa, all right. but we don't know it all arises in the moment of interaction with those clients.
1: So when you talk of transformational work, what does, that, what does that mean exactly?
2: Changing your worldview, opening yourself up so that you're not doing it all in your head and you're not stuck in self-consciousness and you begin to be able to get much more connected with the experience of your life rather than a thought about your life where you move from judgments because if you're in your personality and doing that self-consciousness piece what happens is, is that's constantly judging. And that is a thought. Oh, I like this. I don't like this. Oh, this is good. Wow, that's fun. Oh, I want to do that. I don't hate like that. That's good. Oh, that'd be beautiful. Oh, they only got rid of the tree. And, and we have our whole world that is defined by this unceasing internal dialogue that if you want to listen to, try meditating. Okay. You usually keep it in your subconscious, all right? But when we meditate, we see it. Now, we also know pretty much about it. It's primarily judgmental, all right? 85, 90% of your internal dialogue is judgmental and it tends towards the negative. And so you basically then are communicating with your environment based on thinking, rather than feeling. And so we don't actually really experience our lives in the moment, right? We experience instead of the thought about our lives. And that becomes the defining principle of who we are. As we begin to partake in a spiritual journey, we begin to start to become more aware of the vibrational connections, the direct connections with our lives, the, the feelings that we have towards other people, and the feelings that we have towards ourselves. And, and we begin to move into the range of the limbic brain, which is the part of our brain where there is no language. And that's where our intuition resides. And there are deep, deep levels of intuition. And we start out at one level. And and really, those deeper levels are just getting more and more disconnected from self. That's the spiritual journey. That's the teaching of every religion that I know. How do we become less selfish? right? How do we begin to... You know, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. How do we be? Every religion has that as a basic teaching. The only thing that's different is the dogma that we use, all right, to create the belief systems. The practice of religions is the same. The belief systems that we have that should be inspiring those practices actually creates division because again we get so caught in my religion my and that i am right so that in that reality i am the arbitrator of truth and we can't have a a connection with each other that actually creates a, a, a energy flow because we've created a blockage with our judgments
0: so and you meet with your clients for three days to start with, and this begins the transformation. How, how in seventy-two hours, are you starting to chip away at lifelong tendencies?
2: Yeah, well, they're telling me how, right? And I kind of, I'm always surprised, and no retreat is ever the same. Are there,
0: are there any similarities or consistency? There's bits? a
2: bit of a philosophy, all right, which is what we're talking about now, which is, for me, the single most limiting thing that you've ever done to yourself is create a personality. That's who you think you are. And you create a reality out of that, you project it onto the world, you have confirmation bias, you see only what reflects your reality, and you get caught in this thing where you're very, very busy being who you are. All right? And you created who you are with thought. You did it with duality. So there are lines of duality, good, bad, right, wrong, should, shouldn't. We can't think unless we have duality. So understand that your thinking mind is in duality. Has to be. Right? And then what we do is as we're building our personality, we have these millions and millions of lines of duality. And we basically put ourselves on those lines. All right. Somewhere like, where am I on the, on the coffee? Duality line. I like coffee or I don't like coffee. And I decide I like coffee and I put that into my personality, which is in the cortex of your brain. All right. There's no consciousness there, by the way. It's like a hard disk. All right. But now I know whenever coffee comes into my consciousness, I like coffee. (laughs) I don't have to think about it. It's me. Okay. There is no process here. We just automatically react to pre-programmed emotions and behaviors that we have accepted as who I am. That I, you are so much more than you think you are. And if we can begin to get people to realize that, to be able to expand that a bit and not be so attached to their own judgments and their own truths and begin to then start to move into the limbic brain where there is no thought process so that we can move out of that duality and into something that is much more feeling connected. That gives us access to intuition. That begins our spiritual journey. Now, how can we make that spiritual journey valuable to the corporate executive and the company that he's working in? And that's the essence of the work. So every... every
0: session is different, but there? Is the primary thing they walk away with a new way of interacting with the world? Are sure.
2: They, first of all, have a conversation about consciousness, what is it? Then you have a conversation about personality and how it gets in the way and that, you know, look, it does give you continuity and it makes you feel like somebody's in control, so that's good. <laughs> Existentially, I'm not alone, there's a boss, okay, it's me. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it has that kind of, but but it begins to define us as we begin to kind of move into more expanded states of consciousness, which we all have. Right. If you are a tennis player and you're really good, you're in an expanded state of consciousness because if you're thinking about tennis, you're not a very good tennis player. (laughs) You have to be tennis to be a good tennis player or you have to be a great concert pianist right you can't you know there can't be a thinking process there it's what talking about the rock and roll concert it's you know wow people are playing their music and they're gone right, and they're putting that energy out and then a crowd is picking it up and then that's running it back through and man, you can just imagine all of the energy that that rock and roll singer and that band is getting with all of that and woo that creates a wow what am I going to do in between those magic times and I'm going to Probably screw a lot of women and take a lot of drugs <laughs> because I'm searching for that. Wow, how do I get out of myself?
1: That's what I would call like a flow state of when you're when you're when you're experiencing when you're doing something that you're so familiar with that you're no longer necessarily present while you're doing it, yes. and you don't you don't necessarily like you don't feel good or bad you don't really feel anything and you can look back on it as a positive experience but in the moment it's, it's, you're, you're almost not even there
2: that you were talking about your concert and when you reached that epiphany you weren't there right? If you were there, you would have gotten in the way of that epiphany, and you would have not understood the fish, because you would have been judging, you would have been too busy judging them, okay? (laughs) So that you couldn't experience them. And once you experience them, you got them, okay? Wow, I understand the fish now. And now, every time you hear that song that was that Wow, that's another hit. It begins to allow you to remember. I mean, I keep a lot of Buddhas and Ganeshas and Kuanyans around here just to remind me.
1: (laughs) It's sort of an off-topic question, but do you think that there is an objective morality? No. So you think that there's no... There's no moral right. It's all subjective.
2: (sighs) You have to understand that there are two languages when we begin to talk about these things, all right? So there is a spiritual language, okay? And then there is the language that we use when we are caught in our personalities. And so there's different meanings for the same words, depending upon where you're coming from. So the answer is yes and no. Okay. It's like, for me, there is a relative morality based on my state of consciousness.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm.
2: So that always will be relative.
1: So, what's the yes part?
2: The yes part is that um, there is a morality in the energies that we produce, okay? Hmm. That we vibrate at, right? That we can feel, okay? This is not something that is something that we think, again, now we're at the feeling level, and then we can begin to distinguish which of the vibrational frequencies is connected to a virtual cycle where I'm connected with you and you're connected with me, and we are doing this energy cycle with each other. We can feel that, and there is a Immorality in not doing that more.
1: <laughs> I think that's the most defined answer I've ever gotten to that question. Well, well, well put.
0: Uh, what's the relationship between emotions and vibrations?
2: Uh, they're the same. All right. Emotions are just vibrational frequencies that come up when we need something to put ourselves in psychological and physiological balance, right? So they have a role. And as human beings, when we're born into our humanness, we have a range of vibrational frequencies that we can feel, right? All of those vibrational frequencies do the same thing they bring us back into harmony and balance. But because we're mostly caught in the brain that is the thinking brain and the one that's judging all the time and 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 has to put labels on everything. So for that huge range of vibrational frequencies and all the combinations of those, All right, we maybe have 75 words that we picked out to reify those emotions so that when you're sad, then you can bring it up into your head and you start to feel what you think sad's supposed to feel like. And you disconnect from the feeling. We also label that, oh, sad is a bad emotion, whereas joy and happiness is a good emotion. They both have the exact same function. And there are times for you when you need to come into balance in a certain way. You need to feel sad. You need to feel insecure. You need to feel frightened. Those are just as important emotions because all of them are within that human frequency. We have a tendency with the words to put them in places where we begin to define. So we define love as maybe lust or romance or, you know, whatever, right? Love is all of the frequencies of a human being. And when you feel all of those frequencies simultaneously, including the suffering that has to be a part of love, the insecurity that has to be a part of love, all of that together, is what love wow. is. Don't know how we got here, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the emotional. Thing.
1: I like where we got to. <laughs> Do
0: you think all humans have the same range?
2: Don't know, but I would expect there is some some variation. All right. Um, We certainly know that there is a group of people, and I do know that many, many people are much more sensitive than other people. So there is a, quality called HSP, highly sensitive people. And that that top end of that 5% of of, um, sensitivity, that's actually a clinical diagnosis, HSP. And what happens is that you're just kind of there and you're more tuned in to the vibrational level than anybody else is. And so you pick up emotions more readily. Now, for most people, because we don't really create allowance for that and we don't protect those sensitive people, what happens is that becomes a curse for them, probably for a long time in their life. At some point, when they begin to understand that there is a real gift with that kind of sensitivity, right, then they begin to come into their own, and they're the people that have the easiest access to their intuition because that sensitivity is already pre existing. <laughs> Our HSP girl. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well said, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm always musing over. I was just having a conversation with my mom earlier this week of that it's so interesting to me how much i I love people and I'm so outgoing, and that I spend so much of my time and especially my professional life avoiding people, being like a computer, <laughs> a computer who doesn't have emotions, <laughs> and I can just you know. It's it's very predictable. It does exactly what I tell it to do all the time. Such
2: a... Except it leaves you with a residue, all right, of needing to please. The computer? Yes.
0: Oh, is that where that comes from?
2: <laughs> no, it just you still have the emotional sensitivity, you're avoiding people, but anybody that gets through all right that veil, then it comes with all right, an obligation for you, is you need to please, you need to get their approval, right? That's why it's hard for you to get very broad in terms of your personal contacts, because then there are too many shoulds, there are too many people that you need to please, and then that drains you of energy.
0: Very very insightful.
2: (laughs) It's
1: interesting. So Jen Jen is very sensitive to all, much more sensitive to, to environmental stimuli than I am. Um, I probably doled a lot of that um, throughout the years. Yeah. But like I, I've not, I, the idea of wearing earplugs to a concert never occurred to me, um, for instance. Let
0: alone walking down the street.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, but I think that she would agree, as well as her mom, that... In terms of intuition about people yeah, that you are, I, I tend to be much more intuitive. And
0: I think we're probably somewhat similar levels of intuitive. I'm just also very optimistic that I see the best in everyone and that I have a very hard time accepting feeling bad vibes from anyone. And you kind of see it like it is, and you've helped me to recognize red flags and people a lot through the time we've been together and like early on in our relationship when we would have an interaction with someone and I would say that made me feel yucky like why and you'd be able to like pick up on a couple like inconsistencies in their mannerisms or their speech patterns and be able to explain to me what was going on
2: places where you reacted right to their energy So he would be able to say, okay, yeah, I felt, right, when this happened, there was a vibrational disconnect, Mm -hmm. right? And you can see, and by the way, it's easier for us to see those vibrational disconnects in others (laughs) than it is to see them in ourselves. (laughs) Uh. It's why having an intimate community around you is actually oftentimes um one of the environments that that creates wisdom maybe that's what we do with these the whole movement thing now that i'm working on with business people is how do we create a collective how do we create those business people so that they're able to begin to support each other in this journey towards wisdom
1: so i think i think the implications of that assuming success are sort of really, really, really amazing to kind of fathom, like, I think that there is a corporate corporate culture. And I think that it's not great at the moment. It probably has not on been average. great uh, for a while. Yeah, on average, as a whole, um, you know, the idea that and, and it's sort of evolved in terms into the legal spectrum as well of you know corporate personhood and like you know now these things are really taking on identities, and these identities they have personalities, and I mean they're really big. Like I mean, if, you, if you look at it that way, a lot of them, I would say, are straight up very selfish in, in that they. Think in the short run; they they are no, reactionary. I think,
2: I think what what's happened is the model, right, for leadership and for businesses, and and what we use most often as um, the the energy to motivate people is fear. And so, most organizational cultures are fear based. Yep. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, can we let go of some of that? And most, by the way, of the corporate leaders are fear-based. They've been trained in competition from a young age, and they've been driving to, you know, accomplish and to get all kinds of things. And hopefully at about the age of somewhere, they suddenly realize, whoa, something's missing here. And then they're ready for a transformation. It's not everybody that's ready for a transformation.
1: What are your feelings on competition?
2: There is a healthy competition. One that actually is quite fun and creates camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And that there is another one that has a very contracted dark side to it, right? That is, I must win at all costs. And if that means that I have to do something to make you a loser, I will not hesitate to do that. That question comes from my
1: pretty strong aversion to organized sports.
2: Um, Oh, but that's you. And that is your limited experience with organized sports. If you were on a team sport that became... A really um, a high potential team, and you had the camaraderie of the teammates. Well, that since were this is what I wonder. You know, I think that all of there's our there's a whole different sports, thing that happens there.
1: And then and this is not fully fleshed out. and This is not um, you know because because I, I do agree. I think that the, it's the camaraderie, it's the cooperation, not the competition, that is what is valuable out of sports. And is there a way to create sports that only focus on the camaraderie part, portion of it while eliminating sure, the competition of it? Sure,
2: by being absorbed in the sport. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> it's that simple. I'm a great tennis player, when I'm playing tennis, there's, there's no competition. I'm just doing, I'm just being tennis. Now, prior to and what got me into the match and how I psyched myself up, all right, and how I did all of that might have had a competitive kind of quality to it, right? But even in sports, there's a great camaraderie between golfers or between tennis players. And yeah, sometimes the competition gets crazy, right, because people lose it. All right. See, but when even, they lose it, they've lost connection with being the sport.
1: I, I would even go as far as to say that like, like in an alternative reality where, where we didn't... where our culture wasn't formed from just constant conflict, that we could create a society where the very nature of the sport was, was, I would say, something closer to creation. So we're working together cooperatively to create something larger than ourselves. And that was our form of entertainment. And the fact that we have this whole other form of entertainment and sort of escapism that is sports is to the detriment of our society. Does that make any sense?
2: Sure, it's a big fat judgment that you've grabbed onto (laughs) and created contraction. (laughs) And I also look at families that have long traditions of Super Bowls, that watching the sports and bringing the family together and the sport fans and the... We don't know. Each individual person has a relationship with sports that may or may not be something that enhances their spiritual path. And what you're doing is generalizing what is getting in the way for you. Now, I would play with that because even as you talked, go back and listen to this tape. The more you talked, the more contracted you became. That's not going to help your spiritual journey. (laughs) I don't know. I would beg to differ. Because it's not differ how in terms of you're now going back to cling to your judgment okay mm-hmm. right and solidifying it the judgment is it would be better if we didn't have sports and and competition is too much and and we need to have this that, other thing that's going on and you're contracting around
1: that's it. not it's not necessarily it's 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 that it's the idea that there is an alternative version of reality where that doesn't need to exist. Sure, and we
2: can all get enlightened, but we're not. But we should strive for that, right? <sighs> In the ways that are natural for us. You don't go from where we are to enlightenment like that. Uh, certainly, and it I don't go around preaching you should away. stop
1: watching the Super Bowl by any means. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't judge and, those who play for or enjoy right. sports. Good, but I, I do, I do think. But that you do make a value judgment about it. <laughs> I, th- I think that I think that it's it's something that's been <laughs> sy- sy- systemized in a way that.
2: And now you're into relative morality again. Yes. And who's the arbitrator of this truth? You are
1: Yeah, but reality <laughs> relative, relative morality does does collide with objective morality too, you know? Like I could say my relative, my relative you know, like so you know, how do you square that? Like, you know, there's there's a lot of actual, <laughs> tangible, negative things that do come from sports that should be addressed, like...
0: Concussions.
1: You know? The, there's a whole multitude of them, but, you know.
2: <laughs> and tell me anywhere in the experience of our lives that there is not that kind of conflict and it, there is not that kind of tendency to, um, yeah. In, in virtually anything, whether it's our businesses, whether it's our well, this, family this lives, is really and the we hardest can say, "Wow, all married couples should love each other." This is really the heart of the question. Is,
1: is is I think that there is is like you know, identifying <laughs> these systems that are based off of things that that don't lead to where we want them to lead, is
2: is important, and for you and for your journey. Somebody else's journey may need sports because sports for them become a part of the ritual, all right, that actually creates cohesion in a family, the feeling of that I'm with a larger community and we can drink beer and yell at the other team and have fun and there's a camaraderie that comes from that and out of that... May become something that for those people is incredibly positive. We can't judge that.
1: yeah, So now, I mean, there, there's two ways of speaking about it. Right now, you're sort of speaking about the micro person, and 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 I'm I'm kind of speaking from the macro version of it. Of yeah, in the individual, in the current system, that is absolutely unequivocally true. But in the macro version, where you can change. The realities and the perspectives, and you accept that those can happen and and eventually shift. You know, you, would, it, you, would it would would it enable to put it into the terms that we were just <laughs> using? Would it enable us to vibrate more easily with one another? How we think
2: it would, but it doesn't. Look, I'm. Uh, I grew up in the 60s, okay? We decided we are going to have a cultural revolution and a counterculture, and we're going to change the world, and we're going to change the way we look at sexuality, and we're not going to play any competitive sports, and we're going to live together in communes, and we're going to have all of this kind of wonderful stuff in our community. (laughs) A counterculture community, and you know what? In our counterculture community, all of the humanist the humanness still existed, and what you're looking at is how do we create a utopia? And I don't know, right? But we, I know we're not there, and I not I know we're not going to create it with ideas. I we know we're going to create it with energy. Interesting. And every time that we create a contracted energy, right, that begins to pull us back into self-consciousness, I am right and you are wrong, I believe that that's going to get in the way of that feeling, that, that direction, that spiritual journey that will take us a little closer to that utopia, that enlightenment, that whatever you want to call it.
1: I agree.
2: I've had a lot of practice in this. Okay. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of things in ideal communities that turned out to be quite destructive. Like what? Yeah. Uh, probably this sexual revolution had more casualties, right? And probably still does than we actually realize.
0: Of, of like non monogamy?
2: Or what? Non-monogamy. I mean, back in those days, we were like the morality was you're honest, okay? Right. And I, if I were to go back and pick a period of time in my life where I have regrets, um, and it was the time, but I was always honest, but I was having sexual relationships with multiple women at the same time. But when what we underestimated was the depth of connection that comes from our sexual union, right? And so what would happen is is that for me, because you had three or four different girlfriends, one of them was in some kind of emotional crisis virtually all the time, right? And so you begin to deal with that crisis by... Look, I am as open and honest as I can be about my feet. But because I'm going through emotional crisis every week, I get cold to emotional crisis. And I begin to disconnect and become a little bit heartless, all right? Which then perpetuates an emotional crisis that... Was never really what I meant to do, but suddenly found myself in that place, trying to justify it in the name of sexual freedom, and then not seeing the casualties. Like blindly. deliberately
0: ignoring the casualties, or just not realizing that until retrospect. But that's
2: a part of your trip and what you need to go through, okay? Or Any, any bits of other rationalizations that you wanted to create to kind of justify that position. Um, that's, this is, this ability to self-deceive in all of us as human beings is very great. It's called cognitive dissonance. We can rationalize and justify any behavior. You can, Destroy people with heroin, but as long as you give fifteen percent of it to your guru, then it's a part of your spiritual journey, and you're going to learn from it, and it's all okay. okay. <laughs> and 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 so I'm a sannyasin I'm a you know I'm a holy man. I'm a you know I'm one of I'm a bodhisattva. I've come back to save you all. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure that I completely understood <laughs> the the fault with the sexual revolution. So so you have multiple partners and one of them's always in you know, theoretically like what, kind of, okay, kind of, what
2: happens is is that if you have multiple sexual partners, right?
1: We're talking about part, like relationships or just encounters?
2: Or both either one. Both either either All one. Right. And, what happens is it begins to undermine the sanctity of the spiritual connection that comes from um, from having that kind of intimacy with another person. Why? Um, I had a guru, and this is actually Buddha Dasan, he was saying that, look, what happens is is that you carry with you when you create that physical union, because there are so many different emotions that are off, so that's a very big, big frequency of emotion. You carry that with you for a long time. If you have that feeling with multiple different people, what happens is it lowers the intensity of where you can get in relation to that connection. That was his thesis. I don't know whether that's true or not. It just seems to me to be um, close to what my experience would be.
0: And how did you start moving away from that lifestyle or practice?
2: I think it naturally just kind of floated away. Um,
0: like the whole world. No, I think it was the intensity.
2: Once, Once you found... Those were early days in my sexuality, and I had not found yet the intensity of that connection and communication. Once you found that, the rest seemed to fall away relatively easily. Now, if what happened was that we did not guard that connection and so I, mean, I have two marriages here that's been working on relationships plus other relationships. Once you stop working on that, then what happens is you begin to start to see disintegration in the context of the relationship. Interesting.
1: Well, so, so I, I want to know if we accept the premise of the theory that was just given. If the partner, if you got everybody somehow in sync on a frequency level, then wouldn't theoretically there be a sort of elevation? If like, the theory is true, we're kind we should, of, a, I, sh- know, kind, kind not of that. making
2: a judgment here at all. Right Other that, people will use sexuality in the way that they will use sexuality as a part I'm not insinuating of their spiritual path. And I have no ability to be able to make any judgments about that. I can make some judgments about me and the experience that I've had and the height of my um, sexuality has been with, with the soulmate wife that I had that just was... Um, so deep that there was no room for any other connection. It just wasn't there. There was never even a, a a looking, you know, at the cute girl that's walking down the street or the thought of, oh, I need something else or another. This isn't a... It just, that just was gone. Certainly. And the intensity of that and the intensity of the sexual relationship and the fun and the... A lot of it just being not the sexuality, but just the connection, the fun, the, the dancing, the, the being sexy, the, the sitting in each other's arms and just talking for hours and creating that kind of vibrational space was one of the major sustainers of our relationship. And I don't know how that could have existed, if there were other sexual partners that would bring up all of our ingrained sexual moralities and jealousies and ugly. You know, it's just that is such fertile territory for emotional myth, misunderstanding and darkness and great. Ah, oh, you know, it is. It's a. It's it is tiger territory.
0: Oh, Tiger Territory? (laughs) I like that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any uh, comments or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience before we get? Advice? Practices? A song?
2: (laughs) Sure. So we'll do... We'll do that little bit of overtone chanting, right? All right. Okay. So sit, and again, what you want to do is you want to pay attention, right? Put your consciousness on the overtones, okay? So an overtone is... There's two tones going on there, and you'll actually be able to, if you can create a concentration sometimes, there's always three... Sometimes, if I'm in practice, I can sing four, and I oh, have yeah. sung five before, but that's hard to get to, and I'm a little bit out of practice. And we should be doing this down in the Ganesh temple where we've got the reverberating ceiling, but it'll work here. <laughs> <laughs> now, it might take me a little bit because I'm also going to concentrate on a dual energy here, right? So, normally I would. Just do you, and then we would pick up the vibrational tone that was yours. All right, we're going to try to do this. I'm going to pick up a vibrational, you know, tone that belongs to the we, okay? And it may take me a couple of times to hit till I get the vibration that feels right, okay? <sighs>
0: fascinating experience (laughs) wow thank you thank you what birthday of yours was this was it your 29th birthday we went we went to a cave a rosicrucian cave like the oldest doomsday cult in america built this cave in the 1600s in philadelphia in the middle of fairmount park which is the largest inner city park and uh yeah they have this cave we went there at midnight or like for midnight on i think his turning 29 birthday with our friend who does throat singing and other stuff that he learned he learned throat singing from dmt (laughs) um yeah we were just in this cave that already had all these unbelievable vibrations just like you step through the cave sober and you like get high like i mean it is just like, a completely different state of consciousness and then he started doing the throat singing and we were just like absolutely in a completely just different again, world you get lost yeah yeah, yeah. and that was really
2: and we have the, we're, we're, the little ganesh temple downstairs that also has the resonant
0: in the dome that was pretty resonant that was impressive right. thank you so much for being on the podcast
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> bye